All right. Uh, last week, Ian kicked off our God Questions series with an incredible message. Uh, the first part of examining whether or not God is real. How do we explore that incredibly important question? And if, if you weren't here, if you didn't get a chance to, to hear that message, I want to encourage you to go to the website um, and, and check it out, and you will be blessed, you will be equipped and strengthened in your faith and in your understanding. Um, this is also a holiday weekend, so I know we have lots of folks traveling, so you know, encourage others to tune in and to, to listen to that message as well. All of us have questions. In this series, what we're going to attempt to do is look at some of the hard and difficult questions that we have about God. And I want to encourage us as a people to understand that it's okay to have questions. It's okay to wrestle with doubts, with misunderstandings. What we need to do, though, is choose how we deal with those doubts. Where are we going to go to find answers? And I want to encourage us as a community that we can wrestle with those things together. It's a safe place. And there are answers to many of the questions, not to all. Some are still mysterious. Um, but it's okay to wrestle with those. Too often times, I think, within the church, we present this is the way it is, and if you if you don't understand it, you just need to catch up and have more faith. Well, God is a rational God. He's a God who's given us information. He's given us understanding. We've been created in his image, and we need to seek to see if the things that we believe are real because we want to be able to place our life firmly on that foundation. So I'll encourage you, as you have questions, feel free to email myself to Ian, one of the elders, and um, we'll do our best to help wrestle with those questions together. Well, today we're going we're gonna to do a little bit more looking at the most important question, is God real? And we begin with a very simple statement, in the beginning, blank. Because how you fill in the blank on that statement determines absolutely everything else about your life. It determines the direction it will take, the way that you will view the world, the way that you will view yourself, the way that you will view others. It impacts absolutely everything. And there are two possibilities that we want to begin with. The first one is really, really simple. This is, we live in a, a, a dominantly atheistic culture. Um, the Czech Republic is one of the most atheistic nations on the face of the earth. And so the people around us, um, most of them would adhere to a belief that there is no God. And therefore, they simply would believe in the mechanism of evolution as an explanation for how things began and came to be. And ultimately, the way that they would fill in the blank of in the beginning is in the beginning, matter. If we walk back far enough and we explore what science points to and says is the source or the beginning point, the Big Bang, it began with a highly compressed piece of matter, primarily hydrogen, helium, and some lithium compressed together. And then for some reason, an unseen force um, based upon the laws of physics uh, impacted that, caused it to expand and explode. And from this piece of non-living matter, eventually 
came all life. But not just life. Not only did <laughs> my cheering section here. Not only <laughs> did life come from non-life, but I want you to think about the implications because this understanding is the source of everything. This means that consciousness, personal awareness, your identity where you see yourself as a person comes from a piece of matter. This means our understanding of social things comes from a piece of matter. Justice, human rights, love. You see, if that's the world you, if that's what we fill in the bank, in the blank with, then that's all we have to rely on. And our worldview will take on a totally different direction. Carl Sagan, um, famous atheist who um, had the television program, The Cosmos, as well as wrote many, many books, said the cosmos is all there is, all there ever was, and all there will ever be. Now, I made it sound really interesting because he used a little bit different phrase for matter. He said, we're all made of star stuff. Okay, that, that sounds a little more romantic, but he's still talking about a rock, okay? It's the same thing. So that worldview takes us a direction, and we need to explore it. We need to look at the evidence and see what fits reality. And we need to recognize that there are many that, that wrestle with this question. There will be some here in this room where you're deeply, genuinely wondering, is God real? And my encouragement to each of us is, what he says is seek him. I believe with all my heart that if you seek him, he will answer the promise of his word and you will find him. But we have to seek him. So that's, that's one world view. The other world view is the biblical worldview, the belief that in the beginning, God. That there is a cause, there is a source from which all life sprang. Everything that we see within creation, everything that we experience comes from a personal God. Very, very different worldviews, and they lead in very different directions. Now, a few minutes ago, Trevor asked me if atheists were supposed to be on this side, and everybody who believed in the Bible was supposed to be on this side. So you guys, you're all in trouble. Just want you to know, that's not what my little signs here on the chair means. Um, it means that they're facing in opposite directions. You just happen to be sitting on the atheist side, so get with it a little bit, okay? You guys, I guess you're doing good. So uh, blessings on my, my wife. You were on that side when you were singing, though. Actually, I actually, I did put them this way on purpose because I want you to think about where the worldview leads. What's outside this window? It's a graveyard. If matter is all there is, all there ever was, all there will ever be, then the grave is the destiny of who we are. It's where life will lead. On the other hand, this direction leads to a cross. It leads to a promise in the scripture that is proclaimed that Jesus Christ the creator of the universe, loved us enough to die for us. Now, I love how the Bible is absolutely brutally honest because it recognizes that these are the most important questions we can wrestle with. 
And Paul, in writing in, in Corinthians, makes some really important statements. He says, if we have hope in this life only in Christ Jesus, in other words, if Jesus Christ is not raised from the dead, if he didn't not only die on that cross, was buried, but rose again, proving that he was God, if that did not happen, then he says, we are of all people most to be pitied. And in fact, he goes on in verse 32 of the same chapter to say, if that's the case, if the dead are not raised, then let us eat, drink, and be merry, because tomorrow, that's where we go. The Bible is brutally honest about these opposing worldviews. And so these choices, that where we place our belief, where we place our trust, which, as um, Ian used last week, he talked about faith being a chair that you sit in, that where you're, you're putting down your whole self, your whole weight in that chair, trusting that it will support who you are and support your life. So what chair you choose determines absolutely everything else about your life. Well, let's look at some of the implications that come from both of these worldviews and try to wrestle with it a little bit as well as look at what the, what the scripture says. Because we want to explore which of these worldviews best matches all of reality and the evidence that we see around us and the evidence that we experience. The prevailing worldview among the new atheists, uh, along with much of the academic world, is that of scientific materialism, which simply means matter is all there is, all there ever was, all there will ever be. Okay? It's not materialism in the sense of we're looking to get more and more possessions. It's materialism as in particles and matter is all there is. In that worldview, what is ultimately real is matter, molecules in motion. Evolution is the process that transforms matter into life, non-life into life. And materialism is committed to the dogma that physics explains all of chemistry, chemistry explains all of biology, and biology explains the human mind. And nothing else is left over. Therefore, physics alone explains our ability to think, our consciousness, all of the ideas and the rationality, everything that we have, everything that we experience, physics is the ultimate explainer. But does that match our view of reality? Is that all there is? Did who we are, what we think, what we experience, the relations that we have, that we have did it all come from non-life, from matter? Or did it come from something far different? In seeking to understand the cosmos, humanity has long sought for answers that can take the order and complexity and design that we observe with our eyes and explain where it came from. For many years, science wanted to go around the question of in the beginning. Because in the beginning means there had to be a source. And for many years, up until about 60 or 70 years ago, the prevailing thought was that the universe was in a static state, that it did not have a beginning. In fact, Albert Einstein himself, a great physicist, believed that was the case because personally he was wrestling with the beginning. And when he um, first formulated his theory of general relativity, 
He put in a fudge factor into the formula to make the math fit what wasn't really being observed mathematically. And that, that was that the universe was expanding outward. And because his belief system overrode the evidence, he initially cheated on the equation to try to make it work. Later on in his life, he acknowledged that it was his greatest mistake when he saw the evidence, how it was transformed. A beginning point points to something special and unique happening. I want to read to you, I'm going to read several quotes today. It's going to be a little bit different for me. I don't normally read a lot of, of quotes, and this is a little more teaching style than what kind of you're used to with me. Um, but I'll do my best to not take too long and, and hopefully keep it uh, engaging. But um, there's an excellent, excellent book by Anthony Flew. Um, it's entitled, There Is a God. And it actually says, there is no God, that's crossed out. And um, then we have a picture of his title. Anthony Flew was one of the most notorious atheists um, for about 80 years of his life. If you were looking for someone um, who was going to write the definitive paper on atheism and on the worldview that came from that, it was Anthony Flew. But there were questions that kept speaking deep into his heart that he didn't have an answer for in atheism. And he came towards the end of his life, he wrote this as his, as his um, I believe his final book, um, basically saying how he changed his mind. Now whether he believed fully in the biblical God, I don't know, but he definitely changed his mind from believing that there was no God to seeing that the evidence pointed to God. Here's what he said as part of this process of wrestling with the evidence. When I first met the Big Bang Theory as an atheist, it seemed to me the theory made a big difference because it suggested that the universe had a beginning and that the first sentence in Genesis, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth, was related to an event in the universe. As long as we see its existence and its most fundamental uh, features as brute facts. And if there had been no reason to think that the universe had a beginning, there would be no need to postulate or to think something else had produced the whole thing. But that Big Bang Theory changed all that. If the universe had a beginning, it became entirely sensible, almost inevitable, to ask what produced this beginning. This radically altered the situation. At the same time, I predicted that atheists were bound to see the Big Bang cosmology as requiring a physical explanation. An explanation that admittedly might be forever inaccessible to human beings. But I admitted that believers could equally reasonably welcome the Big Bang cosmology as tending to confirm their prior belief that in the beginning, the universe was created by God. After a lifetime of believing this worldview, seeing the evidence through that lens, he came to the conclusion that what reality showed him was there had to be a God who created everything. 
So we have our two basic options, in the beginning matter or in the beginning God. But let's look at uh, this passage of scripture. Ian looked at it last week and, uh, and did a great job. I'm just going to pick up a couple points from this same passage as well. Romans chapter 1, verse 18 through 25. This is God talking directly to the evidence and the response that we have to the evidence of how he has revealed himself in the universe. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. So the first statement here in this passage that God is making is that the reason people choose this view is because they're choosing to suppress other evidence that points them to God. It's a choice of their own will, of their own volition, to suppress the truth. He goes on to say, For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. Now, I want you to remember here, because we'll come back to this later, that he gives two points of evidence. God's eternal power, the force which created and sustains the universe, and secondly, he gives his divine nature, an invisible quality that makes an incredible difference in life. The character and attributes of God that are reflected especially in the human existence. Those characteristics, that divine nature, include things like love, justice, mercy, the value of humanity. Those are things that come from his divine character that have absolutely no reference point if matter is all there is, all there ever was, and all there will ever be. There is no way to explain where they come from. And in wrestling with these questions, it was those issues that tended to push Anthony Flew over the edge to belief in God. It wasn't just the physical stuff, the mechanism. There was more evidence out there. Well, the scripture goes on to say, for although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools, and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. The first point we need to remember is that as humans, we continually seek an excuse to live independently of any accountability to a creator God. You see, if, if the answer to the question in the beginning is God, then that means I have a personal responsibility in how I relate and respond to God. If the answer is in the beginning matter, then I'm free, or it seems like I'm free, to do whatever I want. Now what is really interesting is if you really read the writings and the work of the new atheists, they do not believe in free will. Because everything is governed by the laws of physics. Determinism ultimately is what drives everything. Therefore, for a true atheist, the true worldview is you do not have free will. 
It is simply an illusion where you feel like you're making choices. In reality, you are being driven by the laws of physics and you have no option but to respond in the way that the law determines. You see, it is actually only biblical Christianity that proclaims that you and I have free will. The ability to make this choice. It comes not from atheism. You see, the, the, the idea is that if I can avoid God, I'm free to do whatever I want. But it's a false premise. Freedom is a gift from a creator God who made us in his image and gave us the choice to choose to love him or reject him. To, live a, to attempt to live a life independently of him or a life that depended completely on who he is and what he had done for us. A radical difference between these worldviews. We seek an excuse. C.S. Lewis has a great, great quote in his incredible book, Mere Christianity. He says this, nearly all that we call human history is the long, terrible story of man trying to find something other than God which will make him happy. I can tell you, that is the testimony of so many, it is the testimony of my own heart and life. The joy, the happiness, ultimately you want to find will never be found in stuff. It can only be found in God. Because we're trying to fill an infinite hole with finite matter. And it will not fit. The only thing that can fill an infinite hole within us is someone who is infinite, and the only one who is infinite is God, without measure. Humanity is desperate to find answers to the big questions of life that can work their way around God. But the truth is, we live in a cause and effect universe. There are laws that govern our universe. That if matter is the cause and all that exists, then we think we can choose to do what we want. But if God is the cause, then everything about us is ultimately accountable to him. So let's look at these laws for a moment. I want to start with a quote from, from a book called Finding Truth by Nancy Percy. It says this, The origin of the universe has given rise to a puzzle known as the fine-tuning problem. The fundamental physical constants of the universe are exquisitely balanced, as though on a knife's edge to sustain life. Things like the force of gravity, the strong nuclear force, the weak nuclear force, the electromagnetic force, the ratio of the mass of the proton and the electron. I know it sounds like I know what I'm talking about. I'm just reading the quote, okay? So don't, don't be confused here. It's just... I see the words, I know what most of them mean. I'm not sure exactly what it's saying, but it's true. Many other factors have to have just the right value needed to make life possible. If any of these critical numbers were changed even slightly, the universe could not sustain any form of life. For example, if the strength of gravity were smaller or larger than its current value by only one part in 10 to the 60th power, that's a 10 with 60 zeros after it, 
that, I mean, a hair isn't, isn't small enough. It, it's, it's the most microscopic difference. If, if it was that much stronger or that much weaker, the universe would be uninhabitable. It is fine-tuned. And there are laws that govern our universe. And for an atheist, they believe that they actually determine everything in our universe. For those who have a biblical worldview that believe that in the beginning God, he is the author of these laws. Because there's no explanation about where these laws came from. I want, you to, I want you to understand that not only in the beginning, in the atheist views of mindset, in the beginning, matter is all there was, all there, well, um, excuse me, all there is, all there will ever, anyway, matter is all there is, Whew, tough. But also you have to figure out where did the information and the laws come from that control the universe? How do we explain those? Well, well the first law is the first law of thermodynamics. And it's a law of conservation. And it means simply this. There's a fixed amount of matter and energy in the universe. It can neither be created nor destroyed. You can convert matter to energy and vice versa. You can convert um, energy to matter. But the total amount that has been created is fixed. You cannot create matter out of nothing. So therefore, according to, um, to the atheist Mindset, everything in the universe, every particle in all of the galaxies was initially compressed into a very small point. Now, they still can't explain where that compressed amount of incredibly dense matter came from in the first place, but they had to make it super, super small, and then it exploded. Instead of believing that there's an outside source who created They're very, very different worldviews. Well, what does the Bible say? Well, the Bible actually addresses this directly. It says this in Genesis chapter 2. The heavens and the earth were finished, and all the host of them. And on the seventh day, God finished this work that he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all the work that he had done. When it says finished, it means made complete. What it's saying is that the biblical account says exactly what the first law of thermodynamics proclaims is that there is a fixed amount of matter and energy in the universe and God said, I made it, I fixed it, and it is done. It doesn't get more, it doesn't get less, it is complete. That's literally what it means in the original language. God writing through Moses thousands of years ago saw this truth because he wrote it. Therefore, his word reflects the reality that we observe. And the Bible also, when it uses the word created, in Genesis 1, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth, the word that is used there is very specific. It is the word in Hebrew, bara. And it means to create something that never existed before. It is not like changing one piece of matter into another piece of matter. That's what we as humans can do. We can take steel and make it into a car. It's not that kind of creation. It is creation, the, the theological term would be ex nihilo, out of nothing, where God made something that never existed before. He is the author of everything. He put it into motion. 
Anthony Flew, in thinking about this, had this question that haunted his thoughts. He said, how can a universe of mindless matter produce beings with intrinsic ends, self-replication capabilities, and coded chemistry? Here we are not dealing with biology, but with an entire different category of problem. The evidence points to a designer, to a creator. The second law that we see and observe is the, is the second law of thermodynamics, which is called the law of entropy. The contents of the universe are moving from a state of order to a state of increasing disorder. Left to themselves, things become disorganized and they, they do not organize on their own. This is why your house, your flat, gets dirty. Okay? This is why you have to dust and vacuum. It's because of the second law of thermodynamics. Everything is moving from a state of order to a state of disorder. This is why my face is filled with wrinkles. It's because it is moving from a state of order to a state of disorder. And it takes more and more energy for me to maintain this beautiful specimen of a face that I have. <laughs> it's suffering from the law of entropy. The universe is wearing out. It is becoming less and less organized. Now I want you to think about this because the only explanation from an atheistic worldview is that an explosion caused order. I don't know about you, but it's really hard for me to get my mind around that even as a concept. Because to me, explosions seem to do just the opposite. They don't cause things to be formed. Now, in their understanding is an explosion formed, and then over billions and billions of years, order was created. But it violates the very law that they say governs the universe, the law of entropy. Well, what does the Bible say about it? Does the Bible address this? I'm glad you asked that question, because it does. Thank you for asking. Psalm 102, verse 24. Oh my God, I say, take me not away in the midst of my days and whose years endure throughout all generations. Of old you laid the foundation of the earth and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you will remain. They will all wear out like a garment. You will change them like a robe and they will pass away, but you are the same and your years have no end. What he's saying is that, yes, what God created, this universe, will wear out. And that's why the Bible talks about, when it talks about this imagery of changing out for a new road, he says he will make a new heaven and a new earth. Because this one is wearing out. The law of entropy is causing it to become less and less organized. We look around our world and we, we see the disorder. We see what's happening in, in nature. And we need to understand that part of that is simply the law of entropy. Our world, our solar system, the earth is becoming more and more disorganized, not less. Just as God said. He says the same kind of thing in Isaiah 51 verse 6. Lift up your eyes to the heavens and look at the earth beneath. For the heavens vanish like smoke, the earth will wear out like a garment, and they who dwell in it will die in like manner. But my salvation will be forever, and my righteousness will never be dismayed. 
Einstein recognized this reality and that's why he repented and it's called his addition of the cosmological constant, the greatest blunder in his life. And after this, Einstein wrote not only of the necessity of a beginning, but of his desire to know how God created this world. He said, I am not interested in this or that phenomenon, in the spectrum of this or that element. I want to know his thoughts. The rest are all details. Albert Einstein. The atheist proclaims that these laws are simply how life is and that they do not have a source. The information behind them comes from an unknown place. They just are. Anthony Flew wrestled with this question as well in his journey to belief in God. And he said this, according to Newton's first law of motion, an object at rest will remain at rest unless acted upon by an external and unbalanced force. An object in motion will remain in motion unless also acted upon by an external and unbalanced force. According to the law of conservation of energy, the total amount of energy in an isolated system remains constant. That's the first law of thermodynamics. The important is not merely that there are regularities in nature, but that these regularities are mathematically precise, universal, and tied together. Einstein, Einstein spoke of them as reason incarnate. The question we should ask is how nature came packaged in this fashion. This is certainly the question that sci scientists from Newton to Einstein to Heisenberg have asked and answered, and their answer was the mind of God. That's the only explanation that really satisfies the order and complexity that we see in our world. Well, the passage of Scripture not only talks about an excuse, but it talks about an exchange. Because not only will we seek an excuse to avoid being accountable to God, but the great danger of the human heart is that we will constantly seek to exchange God's rightful place and put something else where He alone belongs. The exchange. Humanity always seeks to put something else in God's place. This is what Romans 1 verse 25 says. They exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worship and serve created things rather than the creator who is praised forever. Now, what we need to, to grab a hold of here is understand that in the scripture, it spends very little time actually dealing with atheism. Um, the verses that Jim read for us earlier from Psalm uh, 14, and also they're repeated in Psalm 56, um, says the fool has said in his heart there is no God, are a couple of places that are direct unbelief directly. But the vast majority of the contrast that we have in the scripture between a biblical worldview is that with idolatry. You see, an idol is something that we place in God's position. For an atheist, the first thing that they place in God's position is matter. That matter is all there is, all there ever was, all there will ever be. Therefore, it determines everything about my life, and I'm only accountable to matter, to stuff.
The hidden sin beneath all others is the tendency to make an idol out of the things of this world, out of the creatures, the created things. And that doesn't just mean an idol like we think of in the Old Testament where they made an image of, of Baal or Asheroth, but it's anything that we put in God's place. Idolatry has not diminished. In the Western world, idolatry takes on the form of success and finance and comfort and materialism in the sense of gathering more and more things, but it is absolutely no different when it, than, than the idols of the Old Testament that were made out of stone and gold and wood that people would bow down to. If you're serving those things, it is an idol. And the truth is, not only do those who do not believe in God have a tendency to practice this exchange, but so do you and I. We have a tendency, even when we believe in God, to put other things, other ideas, other relationships in His rightful place. See, an idol is anything we want more than God, anything we rely on more than God, anything that we look to for greater comfort or fulfillment than God Himself. A good thing can become a God thing if we want it or trust in it more than God himself. So what God calls all of us to do is examine and see, have I placed idols in God's rightful place? If so, it's keeping me from encountering the reality and fullness of who he is and enjoying him as he designed for us to do. So there's an exchange as well. Well, thirdly, there's some evidence. The verse in verse 25, it talked about God's invisible attributes, his eternal power, and his divine nature. And I don't have time to go into his eternal power. Uh, it's the last part of the notes there on first cause, and I'm not going to get that far, otherwise we'll go way, way over, and I, I don't want to do that to you. Um, but let's, we're going to look at some of the evidence that points to his divine nature. Science spotlights... Um, three dimensions of nature that point to God. The first is the fact that it obeys natural laws. The second is the dimension of life's intelligently organized and purpose-driven beings which arose um, from matter. And the third is the very existence of nature. Now, in, in his quote, Anthony Flew goes on to say, the other evidence that is most compelling is ideas like consciousness, morality, Justice. See, how do we explain those if everything came from matter? How do we possibly deal with those? See, the divine nature, the invisible evidence of love, justice, morality, truth, purpose, and personhood, those all come from the source of a person, of God. Not an inanimate force or object, but a personal God. And the only way we can truly understand them is to see him as the source. And I believe that ultimately, when, when you cut through everything else, the ultimate evidence for God is love. Because there is nothing, nothing in naturalistic evolution or in atheism that, def, that points to why we have love. Because if matter is all there is, then love is simply a biochemical reaction. The fact that when I kiss my wife and I um, hold her and I in, enjoy that moment is simply chemistry. 
has nothing to do with the fact of our 35 plus years together doing life together and the relationship that we form. It is simply, if I, if I follow the atheistic viewpoint, it is simply chemistry. Nothing more. It, it's an illusion. And that's the problem, is the things that give the most meaning in life are ultimately all illusions in an atheistic worldview. In atheism, personhood is an illusion. Richard Dawkins, who's one of the most notable authors of the new atheism, towards the end of his life, became very frustrated with his doctor because his doctor kept saying things like this, your body is beginning to decay, your body is wearing out, your body is suffering from the effects of disease. And Richard Dawkins got almost livid with his doctor and he says, I do not have a body, I am a body. That's all I am. You see, personhood being something more than just this physical form, that identity that we, we see ourselves in as I has no place in atheism. There's no root for why it comes to be. You are nothing but a biochemical machine. You are truly no different than any other biochemical machine. An insect, an animal, you were just a biochemical machine. And yet, the human existence and experience, everything about it, points to something different. Why is it that if we are only biochemical machines, why is it we have graveyards? I know that seems like a strange question, but to me, if that's all we are, your life has a beginning and has an ending and makes no difference, then why do we want to remember? Why do we love those that have passed? Why do we have something of eternity in our hearts, recognizing that life has a value beyond its physicality? You see, in atheism, that's just an illusion. Personhood is an illusion. Morality is an illusion. Justice is an illusion. Human rights are an illusion. And love is simply a chemical reaction. There's nothing more if that's all we believe. But God says something radically different. He says this. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. That while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Love. Sacrifice. Since we have now been justified by his blood, how much more shall we be saved from God's wrath through him? For if while we were God's enemies, we were reconciled to him through the death of his son, how much more, having been reconciled, shall we be saved through his life? You see, the biblical worldview says you matter so much to God that he was willing to give his son to die for you. You have value that is absolutely immeasurable. You are not just a piece of matter. You are not just a biochemical machine that is born and will die and really makes no difference. You are of infinite, eternal value. That's why these worldviews are so different. Understand that the ramifications coming out of these worldviews have a very different impact on society as well. 
I mentioned that, that morality really is, if, if you believe in atheism, morality is an illusion. The best you can come up with is, uh, is that it's simply what is good for society. But the very tenets of scientific um, evolution says might makes right, the survival of the fittest, and therefore it is in contrast of often what we pursue and value so greatly in the area of human rights. This is why, as revealed in the Nuremberg trials of, of the Nazis, they attempted to use that as a justification. That they were simply carrying out advancing evolution. In fact, there's a powerful quote from Professor Reinhard uh, Weichert, the, the author of Hitler's Ethic, he said this, since Hitler viewed evolutionary progress as essentially good, he believed that the highest good is to cooperate with the evolutionary process. Thus, Hitler justified any immorality committed to those outside the racial community as long as it contributed to the welfare of the Aryan race. Hence, killing Jews, in his view, the unfit, was not only morally justified, it was morally praiseworthy. Do you see where it goes? If it is simply the survival of the fittest, then human rights is an illusion. But God says, every person is created in the image of God. He says in his word that he is calling you, that he loves you, that you are precious in his sight, that he has plans for you that he desires you, you have value. These two worlds could not, worldviews could not be more different. The question is, where do you sit? Where will you put your trust? Will you put your trust in God? Or will you put your trust in matter? God in his word in Jeremiah has, has a promise for his people when he says, I know the plans that I have for you. This is written specifically to Israel, but has application to the rest of us as well. He says, I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare and not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. Then you will call upon me and come and pray to me and I will hear you. You will seek me and find me. When you seek me with all your heart, I will be found by you, declares the Lord. That promise is what God is calling to each and every one of us here today. Maybe you've got serious doubts. Maybe you've, you've never come to a point where you wanted to, where you're able to trust in God and, and you're still not sure. What he says is, look for me. Pursue me. Ask me. Simply pray, Lord, if you're real, I want to know you. Show me more about who you are. And then look at the evidence around you. Not just... The physical world, that's important. Those, those laws that we see, the evidence of design and nature, those are important. But I, as I mentioned, I believe the greatest proof of God's existence is love. Because this is what the Bible says. In 1 John chapter 4, Beloved, let us, not, let us love one another, for love is from God. And whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God. Because God is is love. It is his invisible attribute, his divine character. It is, cannot be explained by natural processes. 
It cannot be explained by matter. It did not just happen. It is not the invention of, hu of human reasoning or human experience. It is a gift that comes from God himself. And God said he loves you so much, he gave his son for you. So what will you do with his love? In a moment, we're going to close in with a song of worship. But after our service, there will be intercessors over here to pray with you. If you have questions, if you have struggles, if you don't know what all this means, um, if you just need someone to pray with you, I want to encourage you to, to step over and spend some time with our intercessors. But I urge you, this is the most important question. And maybe you're, you're already at a point where you say, yes, I believe God is real. But understand that our life, our worldview, everything about us is strengthened by the depth of our belief. The more we put our trust in who God is, in what he says, the stronger not only our faith will be, but our life will be. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for the truth of who you are. Lord, I, I thank you for each person you brought here today. Lord, I just ask that you'd speak into their hearts about you. Lord, that you cut through the words that were said and that your Holy Spirit would speak in, in, in their place. And that you would draw people to yourself this day. Well, that we may trust you with all that we are. We may seek you with all of our heart. We may honor you with our lives. Well, that we would look and dig out the idols, the things that we put in your place. We would surrender those and place our hearts back in your hands. Oh, Lord, work in us, we pray. In Jesus' name.